Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We ask that you will join us this morning. Our hearts and minds will be drawn in unity of love. Our, we will have an insight and wisdom into your kingdom and that we might leave here will, willing and able to uh, apply your principles to our lives. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number seven. Oh, and before we start, I wanted to make an announcement. You know, this is Alumni Weekend at, at Southern. So if anybody wants to share our class, remember there are, we have our cards out here. You can take some cards with you to go up there and share with your friends from alumni. Lesson number seven in our quarterly the Gospel in Galatians, and the title for the lesson is The Road to Faith. And when I heard the, uh, the lesson title, I thought, okay, what do you think about the title when you hear that, The Road to Faith? What, is, what does faith mean to you when you hear that, The Road to Faith? Is it, and I, I threw several possibilities now, The Road to Faith, does it mean the, the road to Christianity, a religion? We're part of the faith. Are you part of the faith? You're Christian. You know, it's used that way sometimes, isn't it? Yeah. Is, does it mean a, a conviction, a certainty? I have faith. Does it mean a, a trust relationship? Does it mean a believing without evidence? We, we have faith. We don't know why, but we do. So the road to faith, what do you think is implied here? Or something else? When you, when you read this, the road to faith. Did you have an idea in your mind? Yes. I think your second one is the best in that it, it's a road to a belief, a road to a trust. A road to belief, a road to trust, a path. It, it implies that it's not an instantaneous uh, thing. That, that there, there's a process, there's a, there's a journey, there's a, a, uh, there are steps along the way uh, to reach that point. Oh, I like that. I, I like that very much. Um, uh, referring then to maybe a path or a journey that leads us to a trust relationship with Christ or, or God? Yeah? Okay, so in, in that context then, question for the class. What has led you to your faith and confidence in God? Answers to my prayers. Answers to prayers. Okay. Other things. Learning truth. Learning truth. Just the way that God has led me all my life. The way God has led me all my life. Ah, I like that one very much. I, I like that one very much. Have you noticed in your own personal life, but also in people that you've known that maybe didn't know Christ and came to know Christ, and you've seen a significant change in their character and their lives? Have you ever seen or know, known that? Yeah, I, I like that one very much too. That's evidence uh, in real time. Yeah. The road of faith. So it's a process of once you have faith, instead of the road to faith, I like that as well. The road of faith, that you live a life of faith. Over here, yes? Answers to prayers you didn't know you needed to pray. <laughs> ah, okay. Yes. And there were people in my life when I was growing up, very young, that had such a tremendous influence on my life spiritually. So, so witnesses of other people that influenced you, led you to see in their lives something. Okay, I like that as well. So as you think about what is it that helps establish and lead and maybe encourage us in, in, the, in the journey of faith, um, we heard truth, evidences, and I, I think of the evidences of Scripture for one place and the evidences of God in nature, and then how both of those together harmonize beautifully, rightly understood, we see testable principles or, or the laws of God in nature and, 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 and in life that, that are testable and reliable and predictable. That gives me confidence or, or faith. 
um, I see the life of Christ, God's character revealed and, and God's actions in dealing with mankind, showing his trustworthiness, his graciousness, his goodness. That establishes my faith. Bible prophecy for me as well, seeing that God knows and can predict the comings and fallings of kingdoms and so forth like this. This, this really helps me have confidence in faith. And then everything you guys said, my experience, answered prayers, witnesses of people, all these other things as well. I, I find all this together is, is, is part of the smorgasbord that we, we draw from to establish faith, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, back to faith. Uh, another definition that I've found meaningful is um, that it's seeing things from God's point of view and then acting in harmony with it. Okay. I like that. So Sabbath lessons, we moved to, to Sabbath lessons, memory, memory verse there, it says Galatians 3.22, is a scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This is the English Standard Version. What do you think about that verse? Did you like it? Did you question it? Did you go, wait a minute, huh? What is that? Did you go, well, Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it. No, I just didn't understand it. Okay, good. That's fair. I didn't understand it. What does that mean? So did you check some other versions? Yeah, clear word. Clear word. Okay. Which isn't always clear. <laughs> it is to me. <laughs> okay. Um, here's the NIV. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go NIV, New KJV, and Good News Bible. Here, here, here's what they say on the same verse. So NIV. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Well, that, does that sound the same as what we just read? But the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin, but the scriptures declare that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. Those kind of have different meanings, don't they? Well, here's the new King James. We, we always trust the King James, don't we? Yes, I mean, that's the only version that was dictated from heaven and, and, and put on earth, right? <laughs> okay, here's the New King James. But the Scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise of faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. Wait, is that really clear? No, wait, okay, well, you know, God didn't dictate in King James English. Yeah. And then the good news, but the Scripture says that the whole world is under the power of sin. And so the gift which is promised on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ is given to those who believe. So now we have four versions, two of them leaning us one direction, and two of them taking us another direction. What do you do? See, the Greek allows for the translation to go either way. You can translate it either way and be honest with the text. You're not, you're not being dishonest. If anybody translates languages, you know that you can translate things honestly one way or another. So what this means is that the biases of the translators determine which way they go with it. The lenses, the preconceived ideas, the viewpoints that they hold will lean them one direction or another. So which do you think is the more accurate way this goes? Well, is the world actually imprisoned by the Scriptures? No. If God never provided the Scripture, if we have no Scripture since Adam sinned, there was no Scripture provided, then is the world not imprisoned anymore? It's still imprisoned in sin. It's still imprisoned in sin. 
after Adam's sin, the world's in prison and sin, whether the scripture was there written down or whether it was oral tradition from the patriarchs uh, until the scripture was given, the world was still imprisoned by sin, yeah? Yeah, so I think that the, uh, that the more accurate version would be the one, this is my paraphrase, <clears throat> but the scripture is clear. All humanity is infected with selfishness and is imprisoned by this terminal condition. It is by trust that we experience the only cure, the one promise, Jesus Christ, who was given to mankind as the remedy to this terminal condition. Yeah, I mean, that's it. And so the scripture is telling us what our situation is, what our condition is. We're in a, we're in a prison house of, of sickness, but, but we've got a cure that we can experience through trust, and that cure is Jesus Christ. So, the lesson in Sabbath's lesson describes how homing pigeons can sometimes become disoriented and get lost. Then it states in paragraph 3, quote, The same is true in the spiritual realm. Even after we accept Christ, we can get lost or disoriented, even to the point of never returning to the Lord. What do you all think about that idea? You know, some, there are many Christians who believe that's not true. That once you're saved, you cannot be lost. There are many Christians who believe that, don't they? Yeah. Uh, maybe we can decompress as we go through. There's several, several points that will build as we go through the lesson. How it is a person can believe that, I can tell you, a person can believe that because they've accepted a distortion in God's law. And we're going to come to that later in the lesson and see if, if somebody can remind me, because I will forget by then to bring us back to this point, but somebody can remind me to connect those two dots for us because this idea of accepting Christ and being eternally saved is connected to a distortion in understanding God's law. See if we'll get that. But what do you think? How can one tell? My question is, how can one tell if after you've come to Christ, after you've kept him as your savior, if you've gotten lost or disoriented or off track? How can you tell? That we'll come to Christ in the last day and say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name, we've cast out demons in your name, we perform miracles in your name. He says, Get ye hence, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. Now, here are people that are doing things in the name of Christ. They're not doing this in the name of Buddha. They've gotten off track. The Jews that were given all the very oracles of God and the blessings of the Old Testament sanctuary system when Christ came had gotten off track. How can we tell if we're off track? Is there anything that can help us determine whether we're on track with the Lord or have gotten disoriented and gotten off track? How did they know that the 20,000 pigeons got off track? Because they never came back. Homing pigeons never came to where they were supposed to go. They were lost. Never came home. Don't most of us go to a physician on a regular basis for a, a physical, for an exam? Okay. Don't cancer patients get serial MRIs to follow up after, the, uh, after they've been declared healed? Okay. So are you suggesting that we need some standard, some measure that we can, some mirror that we can look into to compare ourselves to, to see whether in fact we're, we're you know, on track or off track, right? A compass, if anybody's ever been in the military and had to uh, navigate uh, land navigation, uh, you have a compass and a map, and the compass helps you guide your course. Yes. I was just going to say that compass has to be Jesus. We have to look to him constantly, not to get off track. I think, I think ultimately that's correct. Um, how do we know whether we're looking to Jesus? Jesus said there'll be many false Christs that go out into the world. Uh, David Koresh was claiming to follow Jesus, wasn't he? 
and the Branch Davidians claim to follow Jesus, don't they? True. Yeah. And so they're going to say, hey, we're following Jesus. We're on track. Right. Yeah. Sometimes our vision is defective. And even when we're looking somewhere, we can't really discern what we have until we have a good pair of glasses or something to help us focus. Ah, yeah. <laughs> yes. I would say it's like a mirror that allows us to see our condition, how we're really like, and allows us to cling to a Savior. Okay, let's read the last paragraph. The last paragraph says, The good news is, however, that God has not left us to ourselves. He has mapped out the road to faith as revealed in the gospel, and that path includes the law. Many people try to separate the law from the gospel. Some even see it as contradictory. Uh, not only do, uh, is this viewing wrong, it can have a tragic consequence. Without the law, we would have no gospel. It's hard, really, to understand the gospel without the law. So the lesson is suggesting what you're suggesting, that the law is important in helping us not get off track. How? How can the law be used in a beneficial way? How can the law be used in a destructive way that actually takes us off track? Can it, can it be done both ways? Yes. Okay, how is it used beneficially? Well, one of our favorite topics that in our profession is a thing called practice guidelines, where you take the best evidence you have, condense it into a set of guidelines that show you the best way to treat a patient, and you follow those to the best of your ability to help your patient get well. Okay. We have a set of guidelines that were laid down for us to help us know the <laughs> best way to follow Jesus. Is the law the guidelines? I would say the entire or- or is oh the scripture of the guidelines? I like that better. Okay, I'm, I'm with you now because I think the law is the law of the guidelines, or is the law the diagnostic instrument? You see, if it, it, we and here's how the law can be used. I think in a healthy way, a reasonable way. When the law in the written law, the law of the Ten Commandments, is used to diagnose selfishness in the heart, point out failures to love God and failures to love others, to convict us of our condition and need for a new heart and right spirit. That's when the law is used in a healthy way, yeah? But when the law is used as a list of behaviors, when the law is used as a guideline, as the remedy, when we use the law as the treatment, in other words, a list of deeds to be done and sins to be shunned, a measuring stick to compare our behavior and others in order to make us feel better about ourselves and our own righteous condition, then it leads us away from Christ. What do you think? Yeah. Because David Koresh and his followers probably felt like they kept the law. In fact, I would suggest very few religious people of the world uh, that are practicing their religion believe that they are in rebellion against God. Most people that are practicing their religion believe they're in harmony with God. The Jews that put Christ on the cross, until they were confronted by Christ, and Christ brought conviction when he confronted them, and they had conviction in his presence that they were not doing things right. But generally, they would bring themselves to believe that they were doing what God wanted. And this is why putting him on the cross gave them proof that they were right and he was wrong, because anyone hung on a tree is cursed of God, so he had to be cursed. They were right. Proof. Because we have a scripture text that says so. And I'm following the scripture. It's written down right there. Cursed. Anyone on the tree. Therefore, we're right. He's cursed. Danger. Yes. Uh, someone asked Christ once, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, of course, uh, love God, first commandment, which we find in the first four commandments. And then we come to the last six, which is love for our neighbor. If we fully 
if we are fully in harmony with this <coughs> commandment of love toward our neighbor and toward God, we ought to be following God and Jesus in, in the full way. Now, I, did you all hear that? I think this is exactly right. So we take the law to a different plane of understanding, not a list of behaviors to do, but a, a, a principle upon which things are to operate. And that really transforms everything when we can get our mind and heart around that idea. We're going to come back to that idea as we go on. I want to ask this question, what could lead someone who has come to know Christ, come to accept God, trust Him, what could lead them, what could get them disoriented, what could get them off track? I made a list of several things that could take somebody who's on track with the Lord, loves and trusts God, and then could flip them and, and disorient them. Trauma, tragedy, they don't understand. Where was God? Why did he let this happen? How, how could this occur? You can get so busy earning a living that you don't have time for God anymore, and you just slowly wander away. There's a parable about that, that the busyness of life comes up chokes out the good seed. How about this? Having coming to know, know God through a belief system that itself is infected with distortion and error. Mm-hmm. Having faith in the system. Accepting the errors as truth. And then when realities of life shatter that system, <laughs> causing a loss in believing God. Example. You believe that if you keep the rules, eat right foods, go to church, go on the right day, exercise, pay tithe, avoid premarital sex, don't curse, honor your parents, don't steal that life will turn out okay. That's your belief system. You keep all the rules, everything turns out right. And then trauma comes, like the Job. Tragedy comes. Loss, pain, suffering that we experience in this world comes. And it shatters the belief, I did everything right. Everything's supposed to turn out right. Doesn't God care? I was supposed to be protected. Could this lead someone to get disoriented? What was the problem? a belief in a system. And I've seen in Adventism, this happens a lot. Because we're raised with this idea, you do what's right, you get good outcomes. You say a lot of the young people leave the church, not with disagreement over doctrines, but mostly over getting um, their feelings hurt by somebody. They just... We often forget that life is fragile and uncertain. And when we study the characters in the Bible, how many of them really had peaceful, wonderful, sweet lives without any problems? I agree with you. And so that leads to the question. See, it goes to another, another premise or understanding. See, if we do things right, then we expect God's protection, his miraculous interventions even, yes? Well, in Scripture, let's look at let's look the evidences of Scripture. In Scripture, do miracles most often happen for, not through. I'm not asking who through they happen, but for. The strong in faith or the weak in faith? The ten plagues of Egypt were primarily for who? They weren't for Moses. Moses didn't need those miracles. They were through Moses. Moses was the means through which God brought those miracles to occur. But... They weren't for Moses. Who were they for? The Egyptians and the children of Israel. How strong was the faith of those people? None at all. Really non-existent. How about Gideon? Gideon's a man of faith. He's in the faith chapter. So when God tells him to go down and do what he's going to do with his 300 men, 
Does Gideon ask for the fleece changes, you know, fleece one way, fleece the other way, because his faith is strong or because his faith was weak and needed encouragement? Yeah. What about Elijah calling fire down from heaven? Was that miracle for Elijah? Who was that miracle for? For the people. How about Daniel and the three worthies? Were the miracles for Daniel and the three worthies, or were they for the other, like Nebuchadnezzar and Darius and other people that, that needed to see that, uh, the, the truth about God that these guys were living out? Jesus and the apostles. All the miracles they performed, were they for Jesus and the apostles? Or were they for all the other people? You see this principle happening through Scripture. And so what I suggest, in fact, what miracle intervened to protect Jesus? What miracle saved all the apostles except John? John had a miracle because there was a purpose, mission yet for Revelation to be written. But other than that, what, what, what miracles came to save the rest of them? Well, I guess, I guess Paul, when the adder bit him, didn't get, didn't get die from the poison. And when the ship went down, you might say that that was a miraculous intervention uh, going along those ways. But how about miracles of healing? Do you see miracles of healing happen to the apostles? Or when they passed the, the, the clause that the apostles had prayed over to people, those people were healed. Christ was the beneficiary of some miracles. I mean, he, he disappeared in a crowd when they yes. had seed of it. Yes. That was not for him. It was not for him. That's my point. Yeah. These miracles were not for him. They weren't for the apostles. These were for the purpose of the gospel. They were for the other people who were weak. And so my suggestion, if you haven't had miracles in your life, you've had tragedy, it's not an evidence that your faith is weak. It would be evidence your faith is strong. That God knows you don't need a miracle to keep your heart connected to him. And sometimes we get it backwards. And the devil comes in and plays on us with this distorted idea. If you have faith, then you get miracles. No. If you have faith, you don't need miracles. Because you know him. Whether there's a miracle or not. Other things that lead us and disorient us would be, of course, lies. Satan is the father of lies. So when he lies, we believe, disorient us. And then relationships with people. Relationships with people will disorient us and pull us away. This is why, you know, bad uh, company corrupts good character, the scripture says. So we have to be careful who we get into relationships with. And I think we've all seen this, haven't we? And sadly, most of the time what happens is the young person who's raised with a relationship with Christ meets somebody who's outside the relationship with Christ and believes that their good relationship with Christ will bring that other person into a relationship with Christ. And it really almost always works the other way. Doesn't it true? Isn't it true? Yeah. All right, Sunday's lesson. Second paragraph. It says, The people believed uh, that the law was able to give them them spiritual life. Their views probably arose out of the mistaken interpretation of Old Testament passages such as Leviticus 18.5 and Deuteronomy 6.24 where the law directs how life should be lived by those abiding in God's covenant. The law did regulate life within the covenant, but they concluded that the law was the source of a person's relationship with God. The Bible is clear, however, that the ability to make alive is a power exercised uh, by God and His Spirit alone. The law cannot make anyone alive spiritually. This does not mean, however, that the law is opposed to God's promise. And I I read that and I go, okay, what does it mean to be spiritually dead or spiritually alive? You ever heard, this is a a term thrown around constantly in Christianity. What does it mean? We don't know what it means, it does us no good. So what does it mean, spiritually alive, spiritually dead? Does it mean that, uh, I guess we have to define what the spirit is. Is the spirit a 
intelligent apparition that lives outside the body, sometimes called a ghost? Well, that's what a lot of Christians believe. I was at a mental health conference uh, by a Christian psychiatrist, and he talked about how there's an intelligent spirit that operates outside your brain. Really? Is there? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, okay, which is God's spirit. It's a different entity, a different being. Okay? So one possibility is an apparition. That's what the word can mean, this pneuma in the Greek. And Jesus used it this way uh, when the disciples were afraid that he was walking on the water. And he said, it is I, I'm not a ghost. It's not a ghost, it's me. Okay, so he says, it's not an apparition. That's one way. The the word pneuma can also mean wind. So is that what it's talking about? We're we're dead in the wind? No. No. Kansas had to think had a song about that. (laughs) Yeah, dust in the wind, yeah. Okay, no, that's not what it means. Does it mean breath of life from God? It can mean that. Does it mean an intelligent aspect of your being? God wants to be, God is spirit and wants to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. God is intelligent and wants to be worshipped intelligently and truthfully. What does it mean? Yes? The tendency is to have the law, allow the law to become legalistic. legalistic. Yes, it is. That is the tendency, isn't it? That's just a problem. Uh, keeping the law and just like in Revelation 14, 12, uh, keep the commandments of God, and 1888, of course, had this problem. People felt, keep the Sabbath, keep the commandments, that will make it safe for eternity. But Ellen White said, no, faith of Jesus, we need that. So, does the spiritual death then mean that we are under a sentence of death? We're legally under the heaven's condemnation and death sentence. That's what spiritual death means. Yeah. It makes sense to me that spiritually alive means you are open to the leading of the Holy Spirit, to learning more about God, so you can worship Him more in spirit and truth. Spiritually dead means you're closed. I like what you're saying very much. I like that very much. Here's what Wikipedia says. Okay, the uh, the, the authority. Okay, <laughs> Wikipedia says spiritual death is spiritual death is related to but distinct from physical death and the second eternal death. According to the doctrine of original sin, all people are born with a sinful nature and thereby spiritually dead being separated from God. Christians believe that because Christ defeated sin and death, those who have faith in him are made spiritually alive. Physical death is, this, is the separation of the soul from the body. For the Christian, physical death means the beginning of eternal life in the presence of God, but for the unbeliever, eternal death and suffering. That's what Wikipedia says. That, that, would you think that that is, a, is the minority view in Christianity? No, that is the majority view. In Christianity, I think there's some elements of truth in this, though. The elements of I think there are elements of truth. Uh, spiritual death. I, I like very much the idea of being in a animosity in our heart and mind at war, opposed to God. That the motives of our heart are not in harmony with God's kingdom of love. The motives of our heart are self-centered, me first. As Romans says, our natural self is at war or at, against God. That's our natural heart. So our spiritual motives, the motives of the heart, are not love, they're selfishness. That's what I think spiritual death means. Does this have any bearing? Here's a, here's a quotation out of Thoughts Amount of Blessings, page 61. It says, God is the fountain of life. We can have life only as we are communion with him. Separated from God, existence may be ours for a little time, 
but we do not possess life. She that lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. 1 Timothy 5, 6. Only through the surrender of our will to God is it possible for him to impart life to us. Only by receiving his life through self-surrender is it possible, Jesus said, for the hidden sins which I have pointed out to be overcome. It is possible that you may bury them in your heart and conceal them from human eyes, but how will you stand in God's presence? If you cling to self, refusing to yield your will to God, you are choosing death to sin wherever found. God is a consuming fire. If you choose sin and refuse to separate from it, the presence of God which consumes sin must consume you. What do you think all that means? That was the Mount of Blessings, page 61, and going on to 62. What do you think that means? It goes right back to what we just said. God's king is king of love. He created us to operate on love. We can choose self, selfishness. Selfishness is breaking altruism, breaking other-centeredness, breaking self-sacrificing regard and giving. Selfishness is me first. I'll, I'll hurt you to get myself ahead. That's our natural birth since Adam. We're born wired to survive. Survival the fittest, they call it. That's our, our inherent defect. That's why we have to be reborn to a heart that loves God and loves others. If we choose to say no to, to that gift, if we choose reconciliation with God, then we remain alien to him. We have existence for a while, but we don't have life because the law of love is... The law of life. That's what life is built upon. Monday's lesson. Let's go to Monday's lesson. It says uh, Galatians 3.22 cites and uses the phrase that the, we are kept under the law. And, and the lesson gives various possible meanings to this phrase, kept under the law. It suggests that, the, that it could mean the law as a means of salvation. Kept under the law as a means of salvation. Or as being under the condemnation of the law or down in the middle of the lesson, it could mean the law as our guard or protector. What do you understand that to mean, to be kept under the law? And if anyone would like to read Galatians 3.23, go ahead and read that for us. Galatians 3.23. Now before our faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. And until faith came, we were held captive, captive under the law, or kept under the law. Yes, what does it say? If the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. I'm going to read you my paraphrase starting in verse 21 through 25 and kind of give you a little context. It says, uh, is the written law then somehow in opposition to the promises of God? Of course not. The written law was simply a tool to diagnose our sickness and lead us to God for healing. It is the written, if the written law could somehow cure the infection of selfishness and promote life, then healing would certainly have followed the giving of the law. But scripture is clear. All humanity is infected with selfishness and is imprisoned by this terminal condition. It is by trust that we experience the only cure, the one promise, Jesus Christ, who is given to mankind as the remedy to this terminal condition. Before Christ came, we were quarantined by the written law, restrained from self-destruction until Christ procured the only true cure. So then, the written law was provided as a safeguard to protect us and lead us to Christ, the great physician, so that we might be restored to unity with God by trust in and partaking of Christ. Now that that trust in God has been restored and we are set right in heart, mind, and character and again practice God's methods, we no longer need the law to diagnose our condition or lead us back to God. 
Is that the meaning behind it? What the purpose of the law is? And do you see the confusion that sometimes comes in? In fact, if you go to Tuesday's lesson, first paragraph, it says, Paul gives two basic conclusions about the law. The law does not nullify or abolish God's promise made to Abraham. The law is not opposed to the promise. These are the two conclusions Paul makes. And my question is, why are these two conclusions or points needed? Why do you need to make those points? The law is not opposed to the promise. The law does not uh, nullify or do away with the promise. Why did he have to make those points? I think it's because, by and large, Christianity has struggled with and accepted a, a false idea about God's law. They accepted a change in the way uh, the law is conceived of when imperial Rome influenced the idea that law that the idea of law away from the natural law that God built his universe to run upon, the law of love, to an imperial imposed law that subjects are enforced to behavioral conformity to obey and, and, it, and it measures out the amount of punishment that must be meted out. And when we change the idea of law from God's construction protocols that he built the universe to run upon emanating from his character, and we see the law instead as an imposed system of rules and guidelines that govern the universe and we have to abide by or he punishes us, when we have that, 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 the complete transformation which Christianity has accepted from imperial Rome, then we, we are afraid. Paul dealt with this because the, the Jews had also become legalists and they had misunderstood God's law. They had also seen the law. That's why they had the Torah and they had, I mean, the, um, um, what was the book with all those rules, that 500 and, 400 and some rules on Sabbath keeping? The Talmud? Yes. All these different laws because they became very, very rules-oriented, behavior-oriented. So with the change in God's uh, concept of God's law, God's character and universe became misunderstood. And the cross and what Christ accomplished became misunderstood. And it came to be understood as paying legal penalty and appeasing wrath rather than fixing the condition of human sinfulness. When we understand God's law as the natural law and that emanates from God's character, the law of love as Jesus revealed, then we understand that the written law was added to provide diagnostic efficacy or so we could diagnose and protect until Christ could achieve remedy and cure. And it fits so much better. But, but when you have this other idea that it's imperial and it's ruled, then, then well, then... Well, the law is, is, we don't need the promise because the law was given and we can do all these rules and you see it was, it was contradictory. So it's how we understand God's law. And, and you know, we've been told as Adventists all along that the final conflict as we head to the end of time is going to be a conflict over God's law. And I'm going to suggest to you that's right. But it hasn't been the way you've been told about it. It's really over, is God's law the law of love emanating from the character of God that he built his universe to operate upon? Or is God's law an imposed imperialistic rule system that he authoritatively puts upon his creatures and enforces? Which way do you see God's law? Because the beast system comes out of an imperialistic system. And the beast system says no one can buy or sell save him who has the mark of the beast. Unless you keep the rules, then we use our power to enforce punishment upon you for not keeping the law. And how many Christians say, well, that's God, in the end, love me, or in the end, I'll be forced to have a courtroom. We're going to investigate your records. We're going to list up all the sins you haven't got stamped pardoned by Jesus', Jesus blood next to it in the record books in heaven. And then we're going to mete out punishment appropriate to your deeds and make you suffer for it before we kill you. This is the beast system projecting on the heavenly king. And we need to 
present a better message that God's kingdom is not like this. God's kingdom is the kingdom of love. When he constructed, when he built his universe, he built it to run in harmony with his own nature. That's how it was designed, built. And when you step out of harmony with his protocols, his law, well, you can't live because life was built to operate on that. So some text that might help us with that says, um, this is out of uh, Reflecting Christ, page 46. The law of God from its very nature is unchangeable. It is a revelation of the will and character of its author. God is love, and his law is love. Its two great principles are love to God and love to man. Love is the fulfillment of the law, Romans 13.10. The character of God is righteousness and truth. Such is the nature of his law. The psalmist says, the law, Thy law is the truth, and thy commandments are righteousness. Psalms 119, 142, and 172. And the apostle declares that the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, just, and good. Such a law being an expression of the mind and will of God, must be as enduring as its author. And then, Desire of Ages, page 21. But turning from all lesser representations, we behold in God, we behold God in Jesus. Looking into Jesus, we see that it is the glory of our God to give. I do nothing of myself, said Christ. The Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father. I seek not my own glory, but the glory of him who sent me. In these words is set forth the great principle, which is the law of life for the universe. The law upon which life is built. That's what she's saying here. Law of life for the universe. All things received from God, all things Christ received from God, but he took to give. So in the heavenly courts, in the ministry for all created beings, through the beloved Son, the Father's life flows out to all. Through the Son, it returns in praise and joyous service, a tide of love to the great source of all. And thus, through Christ, the circuit of beneficence is complete, representing the character of the great giver, the law of life. I mean, you see this, it's, it's, it's profound. Or here, here's one, Signs of the Times, April 15, 1886. As the supreme ruler of the universe, God has ordained laws for the government not only of all living beings, but all the operations of nature. Everything, whether great or small, animate or inanimate, is under fixed laws which cannot be disregarded. There are no exceptions to this rule. For nothing that the divine hand has made has been forgotten by the divine mind. But while everything in nature is governed by the natural law, man alone, as an intelligent being, capable of understanding its requirements, is amenable to moral law. To man alone, the crowning work of his creation, God has given a conscience to realize the sacred claims of the divine law and a heart capable of loving it as holy, just, and good. Do you understand? Are you seeing the points here? The law of love is the law upon which life was built in this universe. So let's go back and see if we can't point this out. MRI, when an MRI points out a, a tumor... Because the, the lesson says, in Wednesday's lesson, it says, the law was added to point out sin and provide instruction. The very nature of this task means that the law also has a negative aspect. And, and that's because it rebukes and condemns us of sin. Yet even this negative aspect God uses for our benefit because the, the condemnation of the law brings us, it brings, the condemnation of the law brings is what drives us to Christ. Does the law have a negative aspect? If you have a tumor and the MRI uncovers it, is that a negative thing? Is the, ne- is the MRI now negative? Does the, does the MRI condemn? No. It's suggesting that the law condemns. It's suggesting, and it goes back to how we understand law. 
How do we understand law? Does the law condemn or is the law diagnose? Where does the condemnation arise? The law or the condition of the person who is in, actually outside harmony of the law? Well, again, it depends on how you understand God's law. If you see God's law as an imposed law, then the law condemns. If you see God's law as a natural law, then the condition of the person being outside of the law condemns. The law... So if someone jumps off a tall building, does the law of gravity condemn them? Or is it their choice to jump off the building that condemns them? And if someone, after jumping off the building, opens a parachute, does the law of gravity now suddenly pardon them? Does gravity change in any way? Gravity doesn't change as a law. It's a constant. It never changes. God's law is like that. It never changes. It is an absolute constant protocol that the universe is built upon, and we're either choosing to operate in harmony with it, or we're choosing to take ourselves out of harmony with it. And when we take ourselves out of harmony with it, our condition condemns us. Yes? How does that work with guilt? Because you don't feel guilty because you have a tumor, but you feel guilty when you recognize that you have a sin that you've been cherishing. Okay. Uh, you don't feel guilty when you have a, when you have a tumor. Do you, how about if you, if your mama says, don't touch the stove. How many's mom ever told them when they were little, don't touch the stove? Anybody besides me? No, everybody. Okay, and you disobey and you touch the stove and the stove's hot. What do you feel? Pain. Is the pain bad? What happens if you don't feel pain and you touch a hot stove? You keep your hand there longer and you'll get lots of damage. So the pain alerts you that damage is happening and you pull your hand back quickly and minimize the damage. That's what guilt is. Guilt is to the soul what pain is to the body. God has designed us to experience guilt as we do things that damage the soul, damage the character, damage the mind. We experience guilt. And if we're very, very sensitive as we approach the heat of the stove, we feel the heat before we get burned. If our consciences are very sensitive, we feel the discomfort before we commit the act and we don't get burned. But that's what the guilt is for, to alert us that something is going wrong, so we pull back from that and stop the damage. Okay? Yes. And that's how we can have guilt without condemnation from God. I mean, the guilt we feel is not condemnation right. from God. It's a separate thing. In fact, Adam and Eve ran because they were afraid. Their conscience were convicting them. They felt guilty. But God, was he condemning them? No. The woman caught in adultery, thrown at Christ's feet. She felt ashamed and guilty. Christ said, neither do I condemn you. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Father doesn't condemn. Condemnation does not come from God. Condemnation comes from the condition of being out of harmony with the way God constructed his universe to run. Yes? I would suggest that guilt doesn't come from God either. I think that the author of guilt is the devil. Sure. Well, it, 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 in the sense that guilt comes when we're out of harmony with God's law, and God would never lead us to be out of harmony with his law, uh, then you're right. Guilt doesn't come from God. But uh, it, it depends on how you define guilt, too. He imposes those feelings. He imposes that, that condition that you feel. Now, I disagree. I, I, I disagree. Because there's two types of guilt. There's appropriate guilt and there's inappropriate guilt. You're talking inappropriate guilt, then I agree with you. Guilt that we feel when we have done no wrong, when we have not violated God's law, but we feel guilt for other reasons. Yet then I agree with you. That's, that's always due to believing a lie, and the devil's the father of lies, and that guilt comes from him. However, when we choose to actually molest a child, and we feel guilty, that's because our own consciences are convicting us of the horribleness of that act, 
And that is because we have a, an awareness, a moral, a moral governor, a conscience given to us by God that convicts us of this wrongdoing to alert us that this is wrong. And that is coming from God. And the Holy Spirit is given to the world to convict the world of guilt, Christ said. Those are Christ's words. Okay? So it depends on, on which guilt you're talking about. Appropriate guilt is, is the conscience enlightened by the Holy Spirit convicting us of self-destruction so that we can, just like touching a hot stove, that pain quickly causes us to go a different direction. God wants us to stop the road of sinfulness and self-destruction so the Holy Spirit convicts us of guilt. But there's an inappropriate guilt, and the majority of guilt people experience on this planet, in my practice, the majority is not appropriate guilt. It's inappropriate guilt. And that comes from believing all kinds of lies. And so I think that you've identified that and, and, and have, have rightly said that that kind of guilt is coming from the devil. And it's true. What happens is people get them all mixed up and they can't tell the difference anymore. Okay, yes? I'd like to give an example of inappropriate guilt. I get heart-rending letters every day from people asking for money. Give a donation to this organization, to the Salvation Army, Red Cross, Indian organizations. And they are so heart-rending that I feel guilty if I don't give. The problem is I can't always give because I just don't have the money. And, and I agree with you. Inappropriate guilt. I, 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 I confirm you on that. Okay. But I'm going to point something else out here. On the, our, our, our jumping off the building, uh, putting ourselves out of harmony with the law of gravity. Now, if we go and write in a physics textbook the equations that define the parameters of gravity, and we write that in a book or on stone... Writing it down does not establish the law. It only defines it or puts it where you can see it and understand it in a cognitive way. But the law was already in existence before it was written down in the textbook. Likewise, writing the law at Sinai does not establish the law. It was already there. It was just put in down because, so we could understand it and see it, and it could be used in that diagnostic way we've talked about earlier. Yes, Margaret. How does grace fit into that picture? It depends on how you define grace. How do you define grace, Margaret? Well, it's the power of the Holy Spirit at work. Okay, one, one, the, the word, uh, I think grace is charis. Um, and I think it's the word for grace. Uh, it's used in the word um, that we get chiropractor from, um, the kairos, kairos, um, chiropractor. Um, and um, it means, as you say, the work of God or the work of the Holy Spirit. So one aspect of grace would be God's work to heal and restore his universe. That would be God's grace. So it's, it's not changing the law in any way for God to forgive you for, mm. for <laughs> breaking the law. Yeah, she says it's not changing the law in any way for God to forgive you for breaking the law. Um, interesting, um, was the problem with sin um, God's attitude towards the sinner? No. Was the problem that we need to resolve sin was to get God's forgiveness? No. Was God ever unforgiving towards the sinner? No. Ever. Did Christ die in order to get God to forgive? No. God, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not give our son, but gave him up. How will he not also with him give us all things? Okay? God has always been for us. It's that other view that makes us think that Jesus died to pay his penalty to the Father so the Father could forgive. That's all part of pagan infection of Christian thinking. No, God is for us. He sent his son to accomplish what? Reconciliation. Reconciliation, restoration. And what, what is it that needs to be changed? Can God, does God change? 
Does God's law change? So when man sinned, did God or his law change? Did man get changed by sin? So if there's going to be a reconciliation between God and his law, which can never change, never will change, and man who's been changed by sin, where will God have to effect change in order for reconciliation to occur? In mankind. Mankind has to be fixed. They have to be changed back into harmony with God. And that's what Christ came to accomplish, to fix and change mankind. Pagan, has, pagan concepts of God, though, have angry, wrathful gods who the sacrifice, the, some sacrifice, some, some appeasement, some propitiation, something has to be done to the God to get God to change his wrathful attitude into a forgiving attitude or to assuage the wrath or appease the wrath because we have to change God in some way. This is all pagan. God doesn't need any changing. And I'm very thankful God doesn't need any changing. We need changing. And so Christ came to achieve what mankind could not achieve for himself, which was, where does the law of God belong? Where did God originally put it in creation? In the heart. In the heart. It's a, see, the, the law of love, and we, we read those quotes from Ellen White a moment ago, being the law of love is the basis of life of the universe. Understand, this law is a living law. You cannot understand love on stone. God's law on stone would be like your DNA transcript written out on paper. Your DNA sequence, we could take some cells, go to the lab, get a DNA sequence. We could have a transcript of your DNA, and we could actually put that down. We've got it now on paper. That would be a transcript of you. We would know things about your height. We'd know your, your hair color. We'd know your eye color, your blood type. We'd know lots of things about you. Would we know the sound of your laugh, the warmth of your hug, the smile of your face by watching and reading that? No, it is a transcript, but it's not the fulfillment of the law. The fulfillment of God's law, the Ten Commandments are a transcript of God's character. But the living law is the law of love, and he wrote it in Adam and Eve's heart and mind as we will make them in our image. Let them be fruitful and multiply. And as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come into unity, giving of themselves to bring out beings in their image to love, uh, they would reflect God who comes into unity to uh, bring out beings, to create beings in their image to love. Okay? This is what the living law was to reveal in mankind. It got displaced. Selfishness got put in there. We didn't reveal God anymore. We revealed Satan. Adam and Eve, as soon as they sinned, it wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me. Okay, willing to throw Eve under the bus, protect himself. Is God like Adam, willing to sacrifice all of us to protect himself? No, Christ comes. Christ, what does Christ reveal? Christ reveals, number one, God is not like Satan, not like what Adam did, not like sinful mankind. God is not like us. God loves. He so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. When I mean he's not like us, he's not like our selfishness. That's what I mean. And he came to put the law of love back into the human being. And as a human being, he did that perfectly. No one can take my life, I will give it freely. He did this by the exercise of his human neural network. Not by the exercise of his divine power. Because divinity cannot be tempted by evil, James chapter 1. His humanity was tempted, his humanity overcame, his humanity restored, his humanity destroyed that carnal infection. He was tempted in every way, just like us, yet without sin. Because he overcame where we could not. And thus he became, Hebrews chapter 5, 8, he became the source of salvation. Once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who will obey him. So it's phenomenal when we see what Christ has done for us. But our minds have been twisted because we came out of a system infected by imperial Rome in which there is an imposed law, in which imposed law has to be, have penalties paid 
And, and even in Protestantism, we've gotten rid of much of it. We still have this core central distortion of, of God's laws. It says in Daniel 7, he would seek to change times and laws. And he changed our concept of law from the law of love to an imperial imposed law that God created and put on his creatures. And that's what we've bought into, and that's why we have these distortions. So um, Thursday's lesson, we might even get to, to finish today. Thursday's lesson, second paragraph, it says, First, we are no longer under the law's condemnation. As believers, we, in, we are in Christ and enjoying the privileges of being under grace. That gives us the liberty of serving Christ wholeheartedly without fear of being condemned for mistakes we might make in the process. But disobedience to the law instead is sin, and sin is anything but freedom. A couple of interesting points here. Uh, let's just first read, because they reference um, Romans 8, 1 through 3. And this is what it says, because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hear why. Hear what the scripture says, why. Because the lesson and what we often hear implied is there's no condemnation because Christ has taken our penalty. He's paid our penalty. Our penalty has been fully paid. All sins, past, present, and future, placed on Christ at the cross, and, and God's wrath was fully vented at Christ. So, so when you accept that, then, 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 then the law and, and God can no longer condemn you because he condemned his son in our place. That's not what scripture says. Romans 8, 1 through 3. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. What's the law of the Spirit of life? That's the law of love. What's the law of sin and death? That's selfishness, survival of the fittest, that desire to survive, that desire to put self first. The law of love set me free from the law of selfishness. For what the law was powerless to do, in, in that it was weakened by my sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering, and so... He condemned sin in the sinful man in order, here's, in order that what? In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. This goes along with Corinthians, I think it's 2 Corinthians 5, where he says, He who knew no sin became sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Notice the purpose and what was achieved. Why we are no longer condemned is because the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in our heavenly record book. In us. In us. It's real, guys. It's a real, fulfilling, transforming, recreation, regeneration that God, the new Hebrews chapter 8, the new covenant. What's the new covenant? I will write my law in your record book in heaven and erase the record of sin that has been recorded there by your guardian angel. And when we look at the record book in heaven, we will see that you've never sinned. That's not what it says. I will write my law in your heart and mind. No longer will a man say to his brother or his neighbor, Know the Lord, for you all know me. It, this is the purpose Christ came, to put the law back where God originally wrote it himself, which was in your heart, mind, and character, that you love God and love others more than you love self. This is a supernatural work, and it only happens for those who've come to know God enough that you trust him enough that you surrender your will to him and open your heart. And then he heals and transforms you. And it's made possible because of Jesus Christ who became the template, who became the second Adam, if you will, to overcome where Adam failed and put the law back where it belongs. What do you think in the uh, description of the paragraph? It says that that gives us liberty of serving Christ wholeheartedly without fear of being condemned for mistakes we might make in the process. What do you hear when you hear that little sentence? 
Maybe it's just me. Maybe it's my conditioning. Maybe it's the filter system I've had in my mind for so many years. I don't know. But I hear that in that, you know what? We have to be worried about the mistakes we make. We have to be worried about the mistakes we make. You know what? We don't have to be worried about the mistakes we make. We have to be worried about the heart motive to our actions. Jesus said, you say if you commit murder, you commit sin. I say if you hate your brother in your heart. Jesus said... If you commit adultery, you commit sin. I say if you look at a woman with lust in your heart. Over and over again, he tells us it's the heart motive, not the specific task. Do you think that when we get to heaven, we will make no mistakes? We will make mistakes, but we will not sin. We will have a heart motive that's always love for God and love for others. Like, for instance, Albert Einstein, let's pretend that we, we have confidence he'll be in heaven, and we get to heaven. Do you think Albert Einstein will still enjoy physics? Do you think he'll still enjoy talking with the Creator about the fabric of creation and the universe? Do you think that Albert Einstein might have a, 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 a computer, a whiteboard or something where he's going to do some equations? Do you think he'll get every one of them right every time? Do you think that, that he's working on these things? I mean, isn't there a certain joy in discovery? Do you think God will let us discover things and work things out? Or do you think he'll just give us all the answers? And you think Albert Einstein, he's working equations, makes a mistake. Jesus comes over and just races a little bit there, corrects a little bit there, and he goes, oh, that's great. Well, then then he goes off on something else, right? Okay? Does that mistake sin? No. See, these mistakes... It's learning. It's learning. Okay? Yes. We will not sin because we will not have rebellion in our heart. We will have perfect love for God and perfect trust in God and perfect love for other people. That doesn't mean we are are all-knowing and can't make mistakes. And we need to make a difference between mistakes and rebellious, sinful, selfish living. They're not the same. Does anybody get, did I confuse anybody with that? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have sent your Son to to achieve what we could not achieve, freedom from this nature that tempts us to be so selfish all the time. The fear and insecurity that we live in since Adam sinned. He ran and hid because he was afraid and we've been so afraid. Afraid of you. Afraid of everything since, we've, since we were born into sin and conceived in iniquity. But Lord, we have a solution. We have a cure because you came and provided it. You overcame where we could not. And Lord, we ask for your spirit to come and take all that Christ has achieved. Reproduce it in us. Take and write your law of love into our hearts and minds. May we experience the righteousness that is your kingdom, that we might love you, love each other, and then be able to go forward and deconstruct the distortions that have been told about you so that we can be uh, witnesses and avenues for you to work to set other hearts and minds free, that you can come soon, we pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.